All right, let's go ahead and begin with prayer. Father God, as we come to you this morning, we want to praise you and thank you for this day. Praise you and thank you for the time to come together to study your word. And we ask you, Father, for your guidance and your direction. We pray, Father, that you get me out of the way and that it be your words that are spoken. We pray, Father, for the Eberleys, for the trials that they're facing this morning. And we pray, Father, for Pastor Kent and Miss Cynthia while they're away, that you keep that hedge of protection around them and bless them. And we ask you, Lord, for that hedge of protection around this church, around our children. And ask you, Lord, that you just guide and direct our lives and our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So how are today's churches evaluated? What do we consider a successful church? Is it a church by the size of the church? By the amount of campus that they have? Is it about how many people attend? Is it about income? (laughs) Is it about how well they blend into our society or our culture? What do you guys think? Their church was dying because they had no kids. Okay. They're all old people, huh? That just means there's a lot of wisdom there. Well, this morning, uh, we're going to be in Revelations chapter 2. But when we start to evaluate churches and to evaluate, you know, whether a church is successful or not, this is something that every pastor should do, every member should do, every elder should do. And at least on occasion, they should turn around and they should analyze their ministry. And they should ask, what kind of church is God building? And then the second question they should be asking is, in what direction am I following? See, Jesus loves his church so much. He holds his church. He preserves his church. He loves you, his church, so much that he has washed our sins in his own blood. Interceding for you, the church, to offer eternal life to any who believe wholeheartedly. Christ knows everything. Everything about every local church, areas where we are doing good in, and also areas where we have failed. He also knows what we must do in order to be pleasing to Him. The book of Revelations was constructed by Christ and it was recorded by John. These are real historical churches. These were all right around Asia Minor, just off the Mediterranean Sea in what we would today call Turkey. The following letters that we're going to look at were letters that were sent to these churches. The lessons that we can learn from them are good throughout all the church ages, from the past to the present to the future. All the churches fit into one or more of these letters, as well as the people in the church. That's you and me. As we go through these, I'd ask you to imagine with me as we read through the letters, what it must have been like to be in each congregation as this letter was read before the church. And keep in mind that each of the things in these letters, Christ is speaking to that church, about that church. And so as you imagine that you are a part of that congregation, Realize that Christ is speaking to you and about you and about your church. We're going to start out in Revelations chapter 1 and we're going to look at verses 12 through 18 real quick. Just as a recap from last week. Um, Because at the first part of each of these letters, Christ describes himself in some of these ways. So uh, chapter 1 verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were like white wool and as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand the seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, To me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. It's a pretty powerful description, isn't it? Now if you'll flip over to chapter 2, and we're going to start out in verse 1. And we're going to talk about the church of Ephesus. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write these things. Say, Is he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks? So attention is being drawn to the angel of the church. This is quite possibly the pastor or the messenger of each of the churches. He that holds the seven stars is Christ. And the seven golden candlesticks are the churches that he is addressing. In verse 2 he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars And has borne in the patience, and for my name's sake has labored, and has not fainted. Paul originally had warned against false teachers in the church. Later on, Paul sent Timothy, and Timothy was charged to oppose false teachers in the church, and those that were ungodly and those that were influencing ungodly doctrine and ungodly living. As we read that, we must consider that the church must have really taken this seriously. It must have really taken Timothy's charge very serious. Because after 30 or so years, they're still practicing it. In those few verses, Christ was really telling them, these are the six things that you guys are doing right. Their works and their labor, their patience, enduring persecution, intolerant of moral evil and sin, discernment to perceive doctrine, uh, <clears throat> the, the discernment to deceive uh, doctrinal apostates those that were taking scripture and just twisting it that they would expose false teachers and that they would practice church discipline how often do we actually see these things happening in today's churches Not very often. And if we stopped right here, we would think, wow, we just found the perfect church. But then as we go on into verse 4, verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. This is the only complaint that the church was doing everything right except 
They were doing it without love. They had lost their first love. In 1 Corinthians 13 and 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14, it talks about love. The love for Christ. And that love for Christ, it must be our main motivation for Christian living. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, starting at verse 36 and run through verse 40. Verse 36 says, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, Thou shalt love thy Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. Are you guys holding on to your first love? Is your main motivation for what you do because of the love of Christ? Or is it because I know that's the right thing to do? So what he's saying is this is an easy thing to fall into. And you're absolutely right. And we're going to go a little bit more into that in a little bit. So as he's as he's saying that it's that it's so easy to fall into those things because we get into routines, we get into uh, programs that we do, we get into our daily life of doing it day after day after day, and so sometimes it's really easy to kind of lose sight of why we originally were doing that. What is our first love? Okay, let's go on to verse five. It says, "Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works." Or else, I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of this out of his place, except thou repent. So the first thing that I want to point out here is where he says um, that he will remove thy candlestick out of this place. This is not a salvation issue that they're speaking about. Okay? If it were a salvation issue that they were speaking about, it would go completely contrary to everything else that the Bible teaches. In Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39, starting out in verse 35, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for slaughter. Yet in all things, these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We cannot lose our salvation. Once you're saved, you're always saved. Now we can separate and cause... Us, uh, sanctification issues you know and destroy our relationship between us and God but that doesn't take us 
out of the book of life. Okay, and we're going to look at this again next week because there's some other spots in there that um, that I think are sometimes used to to kind of justify, yes, you could lose your salvation. So above and beyond all things, we need to remember you cannot lose your salvation once you have it. Okay. Your salvation, you did nothing to earn that salvation. Absolutely, positively nothing. Therefore, you can do absolutely, positively nothing to have it taken away. Okay. That is a free gift from God. You know, the only choice you have is whether or not you decide to accept it. And he starts out the verse, Remember therefore from whence thou hast fallen. He's talking about the first love, when you first got saved. You remember last week, Pastor Kent reminded us what this means. When you were first saved, you told everybody. You didn't care what people thought. You were excited. Your excitement was uncontrollable. You wanted to share what Christ had done for you. You did it with passion. You did it with zeal. You did it with thanksgiving and praise and adoration. The love that pours out of a transformed heart. Do you remember that? Do you remember what it was like when you first realized that Christ died for you? Do you remember that? Do you remember how exciting it was? Remember how everything just looked different? Where are you at today with that? What happened? Has it changed? Are you still excited? Do you still have that zeal when you talk about Jesus? Or has it become a little more mundane? What happened? Verse 6, it says, But this thou hast, thou hast that, that thou hast deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat the tree of life, but in the midst of the paradise of God. To him that overcometh, this is a lot different than if it would have said to him that is obedient. There's a lot of difference between overcoming and obedient. This promises to the individual in the church, the overcomer, the genuine child of God. Not just the obedient, not just the one that's doing the right thing. Because as we can see, sometimes you can be doing the right thing, but without the love of Christ. So the Nicolaitans are in, in two of the churches in, in uh, Revelations. And I don't actually know exactly who they were because it doesn't really go into a lot of depth on them. So, but, yes. So what he was saying is that uh, uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Nicholas that was uh, a leader in the church or an elder into the church and was very well respected. 
And unfortunately, he had a lot of false doctrines and had taught some things that were wrong. And the, those that followed him were the Nicolaitans. Like I said, I'm not I'm not well versed in that, and I'm not going to try to pretend to be. So. So in verse five, when he says the removal of the lamp, of the candlestick. Okay, so you're asking what. If it's not if it's not salvation, then what is it removal from? Okay, so the can so the the candlestick is the church, and so there's a good chance that Christ will come in and just remove that church. Okay, and that church may just never be there again. That doesn't mean that they've lost their salvation. Those that believed in Christ and were true believers of Christ, but the church itself had become ineffective. They were. They had lost their first love, and therefore, you know, that may be a chance that Christ is just going to come in and take that church out. Um, so we were talking about the difference between those that overcome and those that are obedient. Being obedient, as we can see, in the church of Ephesus, they were very obedient. They were doing what they should have done. They held the right doctrine. They had taken church discipline. That's being obedient. What they didn't do is they hadn't overcome. And overcome is that first love. Doing it for Christ. What is the reason that you're doing it? So the church of Ephesus... We might call it the serving church who had lost the love for Christ. Let's look at verse 8. It says, And unto the angel in the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. Again, this is the description of Christ. Verse 9 says, And I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know thy blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. He says, I know thy works. Again, doing the right thing. He knows their tribulation, their persecution that they were Guys, the thing is, is we live in the United States. And we don't face near the persecution that many do in other countries for their belief. Christians are persecuted for their beliefs. Christians have to hide what they believe. In other countries, it is amazing to me just amazing to me the strength and the faith it must take to stand on the word of God it says that uh, he knows their poverty and that poverty is quite possibly because they lose jobs because of spiritual oppression because of what they believe and we're going to talk about that a little bit more here in a little bit it says, but yet they were rich. They were rich spiritually. Because they kept Christ as their first love. By having Christ as your first love, you have more than the world can ever offer. And then it goes on to say, the unbelieving um, it says, and I know the blasphemy of them which say they were Jews, but are not, but are, uh, 
but are the synagogue of Satan. The blasphemy being that the Jews were going through and saying, he is not the Christ. The unbelieving Jews were being used as a tool, as a tool for Satan to oppose Christ and God's work. In verse 10 it says, Fear none of these things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tired, or sorry, that you may be tried, and that you shall have tribulation ten days. And thou, uh, be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Christ charged them not to fear what they, what they were about to face. That they were going to be thrown, that some would be thrown into prison. That some may even face death. And he charged them, do not fear. You know, there are some that teach today that God will make us healthy, wealthy, comfortable, and all you have to do is have faith. I asked you at the beginning to take a moment as we went into each of these churches and imagine that you were sitting there in that congregation. So let's take a moment and just say, what if we were sitting in the congregation here in Smyrna and this was being read to us and someone were to tell you, all you have to do is have faith and God will make you healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. What do you think the church of Smyrna would have to say to that? On that same note, how many of us have prayed to God to change our circumstances? How many of us have, changed, have, have prayed to God and asked Him to take away this illness to take away this out of my life, to change this in my heart, to change this in my life. If your faith is totally based off of that, then what do you do when he doesn't do it? What do you do when he doesn't do it? It goes back to who is your first love. Do you believe the things that Christ tells us? Do you believe that it's true to his word? Do you believe that he has your best interest? And that his bigger plan is more important than our day-to-day -day circumstances? Yes, ma'am. Right, you got to be in the Word to find out where God's promises are and what they, um, what they are, huh? Yep, absolutely. Yes, ma'am. It wasn't so much the the legalism, it was that they had lost their first love. The things that they were doing, although they were doing the right thing. Yes.
question? No. Okay. <laughs> All right, verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. Okay. The first death is, of course, the separation from self, from the body. But the second death is an eternal death. He does, and that's very uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. The second death that he talks about is an eternal death. Okay. Are you spending eternity in heaven or Hades? Okay. So, so I'm going to pose that same question to everyone in here. Yeah. Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? This is probably the most important question one can ask itself. Where are you going to spend eternity? If your answer is, I don't know, then I want you to look at just a couple of verses. I want you to start out in John 3.16. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life 2 Timothy 2.10 therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with an eternal glory in Hebrews 5.9 it says and having been perfected he became the author of eternal salvation and to who <coughs> excuse me and to all who obey him Guys, if you don't know where you're going to spend eternity, I encourage you to talk to your pastors, talk to your elders, talk to over to other overcoming believers, because this truly is a matter of life, death, and where you're going to spend eternity. We would say that the church of Smyrna was an afflicted and poor yet spiritually rich church. On to verse 12. And to the angels in the church of Pergamos write these things, saith he which hath a sharp sword with two edges. Yet another reference to Christ, and you can also look at that reference in Hebrews 4.12. It says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the division of soul and spirit, the joint and marrow, and the discerner of thoughts and intents of the heart. In verse 13, he goes on to say, I know thy works and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is, and thou beholdest fast my name and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days when Antipas was my faithful martyr who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. Pergamos was a very dark city. They were saturated with idols and idolatrous practices. They had statues and gods. They worshipped Caesar as a god. They worshipped the Greek god Zeus. They worship uh, uh, Pergamies. He was the healing god represented by the serpents. This was a very dark place and a very tough place for a church to try to thrive. He goes on to say, Hold fast the name of Christ. And they did not deny his faith or his doctrine. The believers were loyal in their allegiance and they did not compromise by bowing down to these false gods or false idols. In verse 14 he goes on to say, But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast, thou hast, <coughs> excuse me,
It says, But I have these th few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. The church of Smyrna was, had tolerated some who had compromised their walk. Balaam was a false prophet in the time of Joshua and Moses. And he had taught Balak, the king of Moab, that intermarrying with the Moabites, with the Israelites, who were God's chosen people, would water down their system by introducing false gods pagan rituals and all of that is going to lead to immorality and if you want to study more on that uh, it's back in Numbers chapters 25 through 30, 31 ish we are on the, on the church of Pergamos yes verse 14 and 15 Absolutely. Absolutely. So he's saying that you could actually see this in our modern day churches and in how, you know, we have taken in and allowed uh, homosexual practices or same-sex marriages or, you know, um, homosexual leaders in the church and all these things. Like I said, every one of these letters, every church that we have today falls into one or more of these categories. Not to mention, if we look at our own heart, I would imagine each and every one of us falls into one or more of these categories. In verse 15, it says, So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, the second time that the Nicolaitans are named, which things I hate. Do you guys notice the first time the church of uh, the Nicolaitans was uh, spoke about, he was talking about their deeds. This time he was talking about their doctrine. So the church was apparently tolerating these false doctrines and those participating... <clears throat> those participating in the false doctrines within the church. These are not easy things to talk about. You know, many churches and many Christians today have forsaken doctrine. They've forsaken it. They've They've forsaken doctrine and they've said, you know, well, we want quantity over quality. They're taking a fear of repercussions over the truth. They've taken prestige over character. They've taken tolerance over doctrine. They've chosen sin over holiness. Guys, the church should be set apart. The church should be set apart. Any of those in the community that should be able to look at a church and say there's something different about those people. There's something different about them. I can't tell you how much it distresses me to see a church that just outwardly and proudly chooses sin over holiness. Because they don't think that it's cool. 
because we can get more numbers if we if we lean to this demographic. The church should be set apart. The church should be a holy place. The church should be a place that when we walk in and we hear a sermon or we hear a Sunday school or a, you know, whatever activity that we're doing, we should know that it's different. And it'll probably prick your heart. And it should. Because if a church is just another activity, if church is just another thing that we do, another place that we go, then why are you here? The church should be a place where we come to praise and worship God, to spend time with other believers. And yes, to hold each other accountable. If there is anyone in here who has ever seen me out doing something that I should not be doing, you should not have even the slightest bit of fear to walk up and say, Hey, Frank, let's talk about this. How many others are bold enough to stand up and to say, I want you to hold me accountable. Because there are a lot of things in our life that the truth is we don't want to be held accountable for. We don't want others to know that we do or that we like or that we fill in the blank. The church should be set apart. In verse 16, he goes on to say, Repent, or else I will come into thee quickly. And will fight against thee with the sword of thy mouth. Repent. Imperative. And yet seems so simple. To repent. Simply means to admit that you're sin. And to turn away. In verse 17 says that he, hath any, he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him, over, uh, to him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and the stone of a new name written, which no man knoweth, saying, He that receiveth it. The white stone was a sign of sorts um, in the ancient courts that, that they would that they would give to a guy that uh, was either a dismissal or an acquittal of the charges against him. Pergamus was, we might call them, the worldly compromising church. The worldly compromising church. In verse 18, it says, And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things saith the Son of God, this is the only time in Revelations where he is coming as the Son of God, someone in authority, someone in judgment. Who hath eyes like unto the flame of fire and feet unto like fine brass? Eyes like fire and feet like brass are signs of judgment. The commentaries and the scholars that are agree that in the town of Thyatira was run mostly by pagan trade guilds. And to be a part of a guild, you had to pledge to worship that particular guild's idols and, to, um, and their deities and to pledge to be an allegiance to them. And if you didn't, you were barred from practicing your trade in that town. This must have been a very difficult, difficult place for a church to thrive. And to be a Christian, can you even imagine? Let me ask you this. If you had to choose to compromise your faith or to lose your job, what would you choose? 
If you were in this position, you either join the guild, you join the, for lack of a better term in, in, in our society, I guess we would call it a union. Not that I'm against unions, but, you know, go for Take that on another story. If, if in order for you to provide for your family, in order for you to make a living, you had a choice. You either relied on your faith or you pledged your allegiance to the guild. What would you choose? In verse, four, or verse uh, 19, he goes on to say, I know thy works and charity and service and faith and thy practice and thy works and the last to be more than the first. I know thy works and thy charity. This is a church that was praised for its love. It seemed on the surface to have it all together. And in verse 20, he goes on to say, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach, to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, to eat things sacrificed unto idols. He's saying that the church had allowed an evil woman to, to teach in the church, a false prophetess teaching false doctrine and immorality. They taught and seduced my servants to commit fornication. And what would this do? This would produce generations upon generations upon generations of false believers. And in verse 21, he goes on to say, I'm sorry, I'm moving a little fast, but we're getting towards the end of our time. He, in verse 21, he goes on to say, and I gave her space to repent of her fornications. And she repented not. God's grace and long-suffering gives even the most vile sinners a chance to repent. Whoever you are and wherever you are, whatever you've done, there's not a single thing in your life that God cannot use for His glory. God is giving every single one of us a chance to repent and to make Him your Lord and Savior. No matter how major or how vile you think that your sins are, God's grace always has that door open for you. The choice is yours whether or not you decide to make him your Lord and Savior or not. In verse 22, it goes on to say, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth and reigns and heart. Excuse me. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth and reigns the and hearts, and I will give unto every one according to your works. That sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? Sounds exceptionally harsh in our society. But God protects his word, God protects his church, and there is no escaping judgment. Either you pay the price or Christ pays the price. That choice is yours. Either way, God will gain the glory. And in verse 24 through 29, it says, but unto, you I, but unto you I say, and unto the rest of Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine at this doctrine in which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden. But that which you have already hold fast till I come, 
and he that overcomes and keepeth my word to the end, to him will I give power over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. The vessels of a potter shall, shall they be broken into shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give him the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Thyatira was a loving yet pagan compromised church. This morning as we've run through these churches, we have looked at how the deceiver has attacked the church from within, making them unpleasing to Christ, ineffective, destroying their testimony, false teachers, false conversions, the mixing of a worldview with a biblical view. All of these churches were busy. They were fixing the outside, trying to make it look good from the outside. And yet, they were missing what was broken on the inside. Guys, as we talked about the very first thing, Jesus loves his church so much. He holds his church, and he's going to preserve his church. He loves you, his church, so much. He has washed away his he has washed away our sins in his own blood, interceding for you, the church. That you could have eternal life to any who believes in him wholeheartedly. Do you know where you're spending eternity? I have one challenge for you this week. Above all else, anything else that is going on this week, above all else, I want you to know where you're spending eternity. When you die on the day of judgment, is he going to say, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because you have left your first love? Or is he going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Above all else, I want you to know where are you going to spend eternity. Let's pray. Father God, as we come to you this morning, we want to thank you for this time and for the study. We ask you, Lord, that you just continue to, to guide and direct and permeate our hearts and ask you, Father, that if there's even one in here today that doesn't know you, I pray, Father, that today is the day that they come to know you. I praise you and thank you in the way that you have continued to work in our lives and the lives of this church. We ask you, Lord, that you continue to guide and direct us. Help us to be faithful witnesses for you and uh, just guide and direct our, our lives and our hearts and our steps. And we just praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.